0: You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast.
1: Tonight on TopCast, we're going to be talking to somebody who's a famous pinball and video game programmer that did pinball programming for games like Firepower High Speed F-14 Tomcat along with some other games, mostly Steve Ritchie games and also he programmed some pretty famous video games too like Defender, Stargate, Robotron Target Terror, Smash TV and the Fast and Furious driving games Special Guests. Special Guests. Special Guests. Special Guests. So I'd like to welcome Eugene Jarvis to TopCast tonight. We're going to give him a call right now and talk to him about pinball programming and video game programming.
2: Welcome to Raw Thrills. If you know your party's extension, you may dial it at any time.
0: Your call is being transferred.
1: Hello. Eugene? Yes. Hey, it's Clay. Can you hear me okay? You are loud and clear. I've read a lot of your inter- interviews, and they always seem to focus really around the video game stuff. I, 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 I don't, you know, it's not that I don't want to talk about the video game stuff, but I want to talk more about the pinball stuff, and, you know, your, your, uh, your, you know I know you started out at Atari and then you obviously went to Williams, but okay, let's back up, and what, what is your first memories of pinball when you were a kid?
2: You know, it's funny, I, I used to play, this is crazy, but uh, this was back when I was uh, about eight. And uh, we used to, me and the kids, um, you know, the big deal in those days, you know, you wanted to get out of the house and you would ride your bike up to, like, 7-Eleven or, you know, the corner candy store or whatever. And uh, in the town I lived in, there was this, there was a place called Johnny's Smoke Shop. This was a place where your mom told you you never were supposed to go. You know?
1: Yeah, I had one of those when I grew up um, on Long Island. We, my grandparents lived on the tip in this little uh, fishing town, and there was a similar, it was called the cigar store, and I got the same speech.
2: So, yeah, so it's like, whatever you do, don't go into Johnny's smoke shop. But, Johnny, I mean, they sold, you know, obviously all the tobacco stuff. They had, like, the best candy counter in town, also. Yeah, same with me, too. And, and just, you know, a wall of candy. And uh, and then it was like, it was like what was going on in the back room at Johnny's Smoke Shop. You know, it was kind of like, it was kind of like that, you know, the back room at uh, on The Sopranos, you know. <laughs> there was, you know, guys in there playing pool and doing weird shit. and You know, it was all kind of mysterious. you know.
1: In what era was this, like in the late 60s or something? This
2: was in, uh, yeah, like mid-60s. Okay. And, uh... But in the back, they always had a pinball machine you know back I mean it was almost back where the guys would hang out you know and smoke cigars and stuff and uh, I guess because it was like this forbidden place, um, I don't know what it was, but we 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 went back there and we'd love to play pinball and and so the and the, and the challenge of course you know in those days uh, not nobody had a lot of money and uh, so you could try to get a replay some way or another you know. And I think it was it was like dime play in in those days, two four, a quarter, um, or three quarter. I guess it was three four, quarter, ten cents a play. And uh, five ball. It's always five ball I grew up out in California. Everybody always played five ball out there. And uh, you know, we just figure out you need know, to figure out some way to cheat the game. You know, and uh, there was finally some of the kids. You know, the kind of the. I mean, today we have the internet. You know, those days it was like kind of the kids' grapevine. In some way, it came down the grapevine that there was a certain pattern, you know, in the, like, what light was on and what light wasn't on on the playfield that was correlated with the match. And we we learned that, you know, the certain pattern of lights meant the match would be like zero or something. And so you'd, the whole idea was you'd play your four balls, and on the fifth ball, you'd try to get the light set up, and then you'd tilt the game, when it was a zero match and then the ball would drain and then you boom you match at zero and you play again
1: you know you guys are like you know early card counters in las vegas <laughs>
2: Exactly, <laughs> but you know it was just uh, obviously we loved playing pinball and it was just uh, it was a you know just it was the battle of you versus the machine and you know any way you could cheat that game you would you know
1: <laughs> now were these wood rails or metal rails
2: you know, I you, I'm a little vague on that. Um, it was the, I, I believe it was a metal rail game. You know, I think uh, w- the wood rails—they they went out in the late '50s or something.
1: Yeah, about 1960, and there really wasn't a match. Didn't really come in until the metal to the to the uh, to the metal rail so much. So, but you know, I figured it could be either.
2: Yeah, it could. You know, I, I think it did have the, you know, automatic ball feed. Which I don't know what era that came into, but
1: uh, different era for different uh, mach- different manufacturers. Williams was one of the first to have the automatic ball. Feet. You weren't using the manual ball lift, so you were probably you know sixty two, sixty three, I think on Williams. Okay,
2: and th- th- I mean there may have been a couple of old manual games. I think I remember we used to just load them all up. You know, the old manual game. You just you know you you'd kick out five balls and just have some fun. You know, and play five ball multi ball. <laughs>
1: I-, I still do that today. <laughs>
2: I think, you know, there was a, in the early years, I think they had some of those games in there. Cool. But, uh, yeah, so that that was my, you know, that's kind of what got me into pinball, and, uh, you know, my mom, uh, I don't know if she ever really found out we were in there, you know? <laughs> Maybe, you know, don't tell her, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she'll download this, and then she'll ridicule you. <laughs> she'll take away your privileges. Yeah. 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 Okay, so now, when you, uh, in this all happened, this was in California? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What what part of California? What what part?
2: Menlo Park. It was uh, it's near San Francisco. Okay.
1: And that's where you obviously you grew up and went from went to high school? Yeah. Okay. And then what you went to Berkeley after after school, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. And so, what graduated with what a double e computer science degree? Yeah.
2: And actually that was the next place, you know, I played a hell of a lot of, of pinball. Was uh i guess you know you're a kid in college and uh i don't know what it is like your first year in college you know you i mean you hit the books a little bit but you probably spend a hell of a lot more time playing pool and pinball i don't know why yeah. <laughs> that's just the way it is and uh they had they had some great arcades around campus uh um and that and i kind of fell in love with the i mean that was in the in the mid-70s and uh i mean that was kind of the Great age of Gottlieb uh, electromechanicals, and uh, that was just you know there was seemed like there was the Gottlieb games were just uh, you know really really big, and uh, so I would you know play a lot of the Gottlieb classical uh, electromechanical games uh, when I was in school.
1: Yeah, I can remember in my dorm. Um, I, I went to Purdue, and they had a um, they put a Gorf, uh, a Gorf, and a Wizard of War. In the in the basement of the dorm, and we were kind of in a small dorm, and we figured out a way to to tape a uh, a piece of thread to the quarter, and we could fish it through the on the midway games. You could fish it through the coin slots and get it right at the trip switch, and just pull the quarter and crack the thing up to like ninety nine credits. That's how we were cheating then.
2: Yeah, that was the old the stringers, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's all kinds of, I mean, I remember another way they would do it uh, on the pens is you'd remove a leg bolt, and then you'd get a little wire in there through that hole and you'd, you'd you know I don't know you had to be some kind of uh, you know insane genius but uh, you'd bend the wire such so that you could trip the coin neck coin mac, you know getting like a coat hanger through the uh, leg nut hole oh. leg bolt hole yeah pretty crazy
1: yeah that's why I wondered why they put um, the later games put those metal plates in front of the leg bolts uh, in, on the inside I always wondered why they did that
2: that was exactly that was the reason guys were getting free games with wires. I mean, it was nuts.
1: <laughs> yeah, I heard like at one time they used plastic back glasses, and guys would drill holes in the back glass so that they could actually move the credit unit up from the face of the game. <laughs> 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 oh. oh man, the the old days. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was a fun. You know,
2: I, I I guess was it what was what was funner? You know, playing the game or cheating it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think cheating it actually. <laughs> So tell me now you went to Atari right after right after Berkeley. How did you get that job
2: yeah, so that was kind of crazy i um uh you know i was a uh, graduate graduating from Berkeley and uh, so I went on you know all these interviews with the i interviewed with n c r and hillett packard and you know all these uh like the naval research i even interviewed at jet Propulsion Laboratory
0: hmm.
2: in uh, Pasadena in you know, to like do uh, computer programs for, you know, lunar probes and spaceships and stuff, you know. Maybe I should have stuck with that job. But anyway, I ended up, uh, and I also interviewed at this place called Atari, you know, which was pretty cool. You know, I was like, wow, man, this is, this is some pretty cool stuff. And uh, um, I had uh, studied computer science and, you know, one of my favorite courses was microprocessors. And then at this time, you know, microprocessors were just kind of like this was back in, like, 75, 76, and, and the micros were just, like, coming out, and uh, I used to go to this thing called the Homebrew Computer Club, which was uh, in the Bay Area, and, and, you know, guys like, you know, Steve Jobs are hanging out there and showing off the Apple One computer, you know, and and uh, it was, it was kind of cool, you know, the, the geeks that were, uh, you know, in the microprocessors, and, you know, a guy would come to, like, a meeting of the Homebrew. Computer Society, you know, and and like show off his new system, and like, yeah, man, I got, you know, 16K of RAM, and I'm running at, you know, one megahertz, and, you know, and I got, you know, three floppy disks hooked up to my system, you know, and and he'd ask him, well, what are you, what are you using it for, you know, you know, and he goes, well, what do you mean, what am I using it for? I mean, I got three floppy disks on my system, and I got 16K of RAM, man, (laughs) I'm I'm kicking ass, and it's like... (laughs)
1: <laughs> kicking ass and taking names but i have not a single application to run
2: yeah, you know but it was like that was it was kind of like the hardware thing you know it's like like guys super up their cars you know and
1: uh yeah but then they don't have a driver's license
2: exactly exactly but so that was kind of the, the the thing and and uh so you know everybody was just crazy about microprocessors and obviously atari was getting going with uh some of their early games, uh...
1: Now, did you see the early Atari games? Did you see the Pongs and all, you know, in the, the computer space, the, you know, the, the Nolan computer space and that stuff on location?
2: You know, I never, uh... I don't think I ever saw computer space. Obviously, I played Pong a lot on location. I don't know if I ever actually saw computer space. I must have somewhere, but, um, it's amazing. That game was a complete bomb. You know, amazingly sophisticated game. Uh... And uh, you know, obviously inspired by the game Space Wars right. from MIT, um, and uh, but nobody got it, you know, because that was before Pong, and people just weren't ready for like you know controlling a spaceship and flying around, and you could even steer your shots, you know, which is something I didn't even think you can rarely do in today's games, you know, it was just it was crazy.
1: Yeah, it's a co- it's kind of a cool game. Uh, um, a guy um just a couple miles from me like you know maybe a year ago said i got this old video game you want it you can have it for free and i'm like okay sure whatever and i go over there and it's a metallic red fiberglass computer space and i'm like oh my god you're giving this to me And he's like yeah you can have it it doesn't work you know and i got it running and it, it was a bitch of a game to play but you're right it was kind of sophisticated certainly for ttl logic
2: yeah, was cool. Yeah, actually, I have one of those in my basement. I bought it, you know, at some auction in like '82 for a hundred bucks or something. And I, I also have the red metal flake uh, single player. There were like double player cabinets, and they, there's some different varieties, different colors of that game.
1: Yeah, yellow, green, blue, and red. But uh, the most common is red. But I think that's the one that most everyone likes. The sickest is the yellow and the greens. They're like. Oh, man, that's a strange color to make a game. You know, it's
2: funny. I uh, mine has the old. Probably yours is the same way. It has um, an old Magnavox monitor in there.
1: Yeah, it's like a TV. It's
2: tubes. Yeah, it's, it's basically a, just an old tube TV, and then they took the speaker out of the TV and like mounted it on the cabinet, and that's the sound system. Right. right. And uh, it's funny. The coin box was a uh, a gallon uh, can of paint thinner, and they like took a can opener and opened the lid on it. And that was the coin box, and I was going, man, that, you know, that is smart, you know.
1: Yeah, I mine was missing the missing the coin box. Are you saying that you've got a dual computer space two player? I have a single, but that, that, I think there were actually some dual ones out there. You know? Yeah, they're really really rare, though. I mean, if a regular computer space is rare, a, a dual is ten times rarer. Yeah,
2: I mean, a buddy of mine uh, worked at uh, Empire Distributing uh, in Chicago one summer, and his job was to put like a hundred of those in the dumpster. <laughs> um, I mean, how sad that is You know, you think about it today They're probably, I don't know what they're worth Maybe a thousand bucks each or something
1: right Yeah, now. yeah, still It's like throwing money out
2: Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's cool I love that game I rewired mine to be Asteroids Compatible So I could what? play it Because basically the, the Rotate and the Thrust Fire Are exactly the opposite of Asteroids mm. And, uh And I just couldn't deal with that. You know, my my mind couldn't switch over. Right. So I rewired it to make it asteroids compatible. And, uh, and actually it's pretty fun in that uh, aspect. And you wonder if, like, it's just that the control aspect where it had you shooting and thrusting with your left hand and steering with your right hand and, like, almost all video games since have you shoot with your right hand. And, uh, I just, I think there's something, you know, primal about you want to kill things with your right hand. You
1: know, so. Well, yeah, because most everybody's right-handed, probably. Exactly.
2: You know, that's kind of that's just your killing your shooting hand. And so um, I think they made a big error in their control panel there also.
1: Now, so you didn't really know much about Atari when you went and interviewed with them? No, other
2: than, you know, playing Pong. and uh, This was, you know, before the days of the, the VCS. You know, the, the 2600 wasn't even out yet. So, you know, they were strictly a coin-op company at this point. I, I guess other than the Pong home games, too. And uh so went over there and and uh interviewed and it was uh it was like you know, it sounded like a really exciting situation and uh actually I know I interviewed on campus initially. And then uh never heard from him again. You know, and like it was like four or five months and like, well, I guess I didn't make the cut, you know. And uh so I actually ended up taking a job at hewlett Packard. And uh working on some uh COBOL compiler project. Uh it was a six year project to implement, you know, ANSI uh you know f- four point seven eight four nine three
1: COBOL, you know. Ooh, fun. Delicious.
2: Yeah, so I lasted about three days at that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I just after about the third day I just I just quit. I couldn't deal with it anymore. You know. And uh and then, it's, uh, curiously, like a day or two later, I got a call from Atari, and they finally, you know, I don't know what happened, but my resume somehow surf- surfaced in their pile, and they said, "Hey, come on over, you know, you want a job?" <laughs> it's like, okay.
1: Wait, I-, I just like to talk about COBOL just for a second. Who was the genius behind this self-documenting doc- self-documenting language? You know, I I just don't get it.
2: Yeah, that was uh, it. Was it was only only uh, the mind of a government employee could come up with something like that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a good but, thing you didn't take that job.
2: Thank God. You know what? I actually I did. That was the scary thing. But <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I ended up, uh, you know, worked out. I just uh, the, the Atari thing. They were saying, "Hey, come on over here. You know, you're going to do uh, pinball machines. You know, programming pinball machines." Like, wow. You know, just I mean, it was like the coolest thing ever. And so uh, I, uh, I, I. It's weird. That it was such a chaotic organization at that time because they were, you know, growing by leaps and downs. They were just at that point. Um, that was early 77, they were starting to get ready to build the uh, the VCS, which is the 2600. And uh, so there was just, you know, crazy things going on. And uh, I remember in my first, like, two weeks, I think my, like, a week after I was hired, my boss quit. And then, you know, a week after that, his boss quit. You know, and all of a sudden, I'm like the head, programmer of all pinball, you know. And you know, and I've been there like two weeks, you know. It's like,
1: <laughs> no, do we do we know who these two guys were? Where'd they go?
2: Um, they I guess they went to some uh actually some other super secret division uh, of Atari. Mm. Um, this guy I guess a guy named Fred Yates who ended. up I think they're working on some sub secret video phone project or something that never actually hit the light of day. Um they, it's funny they had they had all kinds of Nolan always had all these these projects going on you know and different R and D groups spread you know up in the hills in the Sierras different places and uh, there's a lot of strange things going on I mean a lot of a lot of the stuff never really you know made it uh, made it into the real world but uh, Nolan had all kinds of strange things going on.
1: So time 2000 well, that was the first game you worked on.
2: Actually, it was the Atarians which was the first atari um game and uh first pinball game they did and i kind of came in in the middle of that project and uh just had to kind of you know wrap up a few things and make a few fixes and uh you know kind of get it out of like location testing and you know
1: did you do the programming for the you know for the cpu uh you know the cpu system on that
2: um, well, you know the pro- uh, the program ran on you know. I mean, that's uh, there was one program that you know was the CPU. I mean, that was it. You know, and, and uh,
1: so. so there there wasn't a soundboard.
2: Um, they had a hardware sound uh, um, system that was controlled by the main CPU.
1: So it was basically like a TTL. Not it wasn't a a DAC based system.
2: Well, it was actually. Which was pretty cool. I, I don't know if they actually used the DAC, but uh, there was a, uh, I think it had four bits of resolution. So it actually was a very small, um, they had, it was a very early form of what you call wavetable synthesis. And they had a very small little prom, read only memory, that held like these little, you know, I think it was like 16 bytes um, that were four bits of resolution. I mean, it was pretty, you know, pretty much uh, you know, whatever came out of it was pretty much a square wave, you know. But, <laughs> right. but, uh, right. um,
1: So, did you actually did end up then doing the the game software for the Atarians?
2: I basically I just I took it over in midstream, so you know I, I maybe did twenty percent of it.
1: So, how were they programming that?
2: Um, it was all done on uh, you know assembly language. Uh, that was a, a Motorola 6800.
1: But, I mean, what was, were you using, I mean, what was the development platform?
2: Um, it was a, uh, they had they had kind of their own, uh, I guess, actually we used the Motorola Exerciser, I believe, which was the, the system, you know, debugging system. Mm-hmm. And uh, the crazy thing was, we actually, this was nuts, it shows you how, how long ago this was. You'd actually, the programmers didn't have keyboards. If you can believe it, um, we would. You'd submit. You'd write your software on like a piece of paper, and then you'd, you'd submit it to the typist, who would then type in your code on a. They had like a PDP something mini computer. So you, you basically. It was. I mean, this was the day, You know, it's like you just you know you'd like write your code on a piece of paper. You'd submit it to the typist. And then you'd go and play games for a couple hours. While you'd wait for the typist to enter your program, and then the program would get compiled and sent down to your machine and uh and then you'd test it out
1: well would they like just hand you a set of ROMs or something
2: you know we actually had um i believe it this this is really nuts. There was some kind of system where we would have a um they had used core memory. Um, that we bought these um, cards that had eight kilobits, kilobytes of core memory. I don't know if you are familiar with magnetic core memory. Yeah, sure. It was like every every bit had like a little, a little teeny, um, like ring of like magnetic material with a couple of wires coming through it. And it. They were strung together. It was almost, it was so fine. It was like if you looked at it, it looked like a fabric almost. Because you know each little bit. I mean, this this board had sixty-four thousand little pieces of core, you know, strung with wires. I mean, it was it was like you know it's it it's psychotic if you think about it today. Um, and uh, and that would basically that would be programmed by the the mini computer, and then since core memory retained its memory when you when the power was off. You just unplug that board from the mini computer and then plug it into your development station, and that was how you downloaded your software.
1: Oh, and then the developments. No, how did you interface the development system or the core to the actual pinball machine to actually play a game?
2: So then the basically that plugged into, and I believe it was a Motorola exerciser system, which then um, then it you know had some sort of uh, umbilical. Uh, thing that plugged into the slot where the processor would go
0: Hmm.
2: in the main system. So basically the processor was replaced by this development station.
1: So all the are you saying like all the address and data lines on the 40 pin 6800 that was plugged into the CPU board on the pinball machine would basically have all these wires coming off it to your development station?
2: Exactly. Okay. So there would be a little socket and then 40 wires would go to your
1: Station. And how? Um, I, I mean, what, what at what point in time did they actually say, you know, okay, burn this to an EPROM? Well, you, you when you,
2: you that's the way you test it. You know, the problem is burning EPROMs could take you know an hour or something. So to get any kind of turnaround, this core thing was really cool because then you could just you know you could program a core memory in like ten seconds. So um, when you finally you know felt your code.
1: So, it's in the whole Atari development that you know when you were there, you know, you were there till '79, was all the machines programmed in this manner? Well, this was this was in the pinball department, right?
2: The um, you know the other uh, the other coders, you know, the video guys, they kind of had their own things, but you know, similar similar systems in that the key punching was done by. There's like a couple girls that. that typed in all your program for you
1: <laughs> wait what's up with the girls why would they have uh, these girls do it for you that was the
2: way it was that's that's the way it was in the old days I mean programmers uh, you know it was like back in those days like men it was like beneath the stature of men to like type you know <laughs> plus maybe you weren't that good at typing you know <laughs> so it was like women did all the typing you know it was just like the boss would you know dictate to his secretary you know the all the typing. I mean, before like 19, you know, before even maybe 1980, men did not type. It was it was something, it was a secretary. You had a secretary to do all your typing for you.
1: So that words per minute really isn't words per minute. Since it's, it's, in men's case, it's wuss per minute. <laughs> but that was
2: just the way it was, you know, and, and the women uh, typed, you
1: know. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> You're doing you. So you did you did the Atarians. You did what? Time two thousand, airborne and, and airborne adventure, and Superman, right? Yeah. Okay. It, were any was there anything unusual or interesting about any of these games in the programming of them?
2: Um, you know, it was all very pioneering. You know, and uh, the funny thing was that I remember the most probably the most impressive thing I did. Uh, one of the most impressive things, um, I guess, the, the, one of the, the guys that had been programming before. You know, there's always this fight between the programmer and the game designers, or the programmer and the manager, or whatever. And you know, they always go, "Well, why don't you make the machine?" You know, I want to, you know, have the thing, uh, you know, the lights to blink and flash, and I want, you know, the bells to ring, and then it serves you a chocolate sundae. You know, when you get a replay or something. You know what I mean? And the programmer always goes, "Well, that's impossible. I can't do that." You know, it's like so. There's just like this tension between. Uh, you know, the programmer, you know, wants to, he wants to go home at, you know, 4.30. He doesn't want to friggin' work. And and then the game design aspect where you want the game to do all this cool shit, you know. And so the programmer in those days, since it was kind of a mysterious art, you know, um, nobody really knew anything about programming and it was all kind of magical. It's like, holy shit, you know, that um, the prior programmer had convinced everybody in the company that you could not blink a light on a pinball game that it was impossible. It was, you know, something in the program that, you know, it, that would, you know, just, you know, the program would explode or something if you blinked a light on the playfield. field. <laughs> so. You, you
1: mean the light was either on or off, but we couldn't go on and off quickly.
2: Yeah, it would just, like, lose its memory or, you know, the state would be lost or something, you know. And so, like, when the, like the second week I was there, I, like, started blinking lights, you know, and just people were, like, amazingly impressed. You know, was like, um, and uh they kind of there they were there were actually this guy, um a guy who was kind of the head of the design area, um a guy by the name of of Eddie Boesberg I don't know if you he, he used to be uh his family used to run uh New Orleans novelty company.
1: Okay.
2: I don't know, they may still run that company down in uh down in uh, Louisiana. And he was like an old time pinball guy and you know, and he was just like he was so bad, he was so you know, impressed that I blinked a light that he he gave me the nickname Doctor J. So from then on, I was Doctor J, and uh, um, the rest is history.
1: So, so when you went to Williams and you did the multi-ball countdown on Fireball, you must have just like everybody was like dancing in the aisles and screaming your name like you know, like like you are a rock star.
2: it, it, it Well, actually, that was pretty impressive because again, people were worried that um, if you, you know, the score was up in the display, you know, and so there was some really big concern that if you remove the score from the score display that your score would disappear and be lost forever, and you'd lose your score and it would would come back, it would be different, or you'd you'd forget your score, you know, and and so when when they took away the score and did that countdown in there, you know, it's like people were, oh my God, you know. Where's the score? You know, it's gone. You forgot it. You know, how do you remember, how did you remember the score? You know, how could you do that? You know, oh my God!
1: <laughs> so you didn't do any tricks like that at Atari then?
2: Um, you know that the Atari games the, the 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 most exciting stuff I did was uh, uh, working with Steve Ritchie, and uh, um, I, I guess maybe the the game Time Two Thousand actually had two different bonuses. You know. It was, kind of cool but um, now I guess it was kind of a bizarre play field it had two complete you know sets of flippers and that was kind of interesting I don't know if you ever played the game but it had like two basically like two out holes and two It's like a complete double play field pretty crazy ass game
1: well now this guy what Marty Ross and all he was the game designer for a time so he, he laid that one out he laid that game out you know and then he quit you know like everybody kept quitting, you know,
2: <laughs> like, so, so he quit, he, I think he had a game laid out and then he quit, uh, and then it was like, you know, this was like, maybe my fourth week on the job, and it it's like, okay, here's your, here's the new game, you know, like, make it work, you know, do whatever the hell you want to do with it, so, you know, we just, you know, me and, me and some of the guys, uh, just kind of sat around and, you know, made up all the rules and made it happen, you know, and, uh, um, so, it, uh, you know, that, that was a fun project. Uh, I guess the fun, the, the, I guess the most exciting things, you know, working with George Oppenheimer, who was uh, did a lot, a lot of the great Atari artwork of that era.
0: Hmm.
2: I mean, the guy just made amazing artwork and had this this kind of the, the Atari style of that era in the both the consumer packaging and the uh, pinball art. And, uh, uh, the guy was amazing, and it was it was it was just wonderful to work with him.
1: Well, well what happened to George Opperman?
2: You know, George, uh, he continued working there, and I think sadly he uh, he died of cancer of, of like lung cancer, I think. Uh, you know, maybe twenty years ago,
1: hmm. maybe maybe twenty five years ago. So now you you did Airborne Avenger and Superman with Steve Ritchie. I mean, is it, how did you meet Steve? I mean, it was just purely through work, right? Yeah,
2: So that I mean, that and that was you know that really was was. Uh, highlight of my career at Atari. Um, Steve was actually, when I started there, he was just a guy in the prototype lab. And he was just, you know, screwing posts on games and screwing, you know, putting rubbers on and adjusting flippers. And, you know, unfortunately, the Atari game was very notorious for unreliability. And, you know, the shit would just fall apart. Um, uh, It was one of those things where, you know, Nolan Bushnell, he kind of looked at all the traditional pinball games of that era and you know, this is just obviously these guys in Chicago don't know what they're doing they're a bunch of troglodytes and we're going to redesign everything you know and obviously I think he had a great idea with, with doing the solid state pinball and all the you know obviously all the um, theatrics that that brought to pinball and all the uh, gameplay and, and special effects and everything but the he also uh, kind of you know, there was a redesign of every mechanical component in pinball, and there were, you know, there was a lot of, uh, and when you start dealing with mechanical things, there's a lot of things that just kind of work over the years, and, you know, you have a evolution, and things are made a certain way because they they work, you know, and unless you're willing to, you know, test your components, you know, for millions of cycles and, you know, all that stuff, I mean... You're, you're taking a big chance by redesigning all the mechanics of, of a pinball game. And uh, so regrettably, you know, in the, you know, kind of the the philosophy of the time that, you know, everything is new and everything old is stupid, um, the game was completely re-engineered mechanically and a lot of the stuff just wasn't very well tested and wasn't very reliable.
1: Not only that, but... Parts were a, a major problem, too. Like, I, I know when I go to fix an Atari game, it's like, oh, my God, I don't have any parts for them, and they're all so, so different than anything else. You know, like, in the in the 70s, Gottlieb and Williams parts, I mean, they're not exactly interchangeable, but you can usually, they're interchangeable enough, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, um, so yeah, so that was just, was just a huge debacle. And Steve was, you know, one of those guys running around, you know, just trying to keep you know we had four or five test games out on location and just to keep those things running you know it was just uh a major effort and, and they you know they had the boneheaded decision they put the electronic boards in the bottom of the cabinet
1: yeah so parts could fall off the play field and onto the electronics
2: right and and so you know you had not only had these shady mechanical devices that were dropping screws and parts and ball bearings <laughs> And then you had the electronics sitting right under them to short out when the parts did fall down so it was it, it was a nightmare uh but the games when they did work they made uh, an amazing amount of money and and just because of the cool new electronic sounds and and uh the uh you know some of the cool effects that we were able to throw into the program and, and the wide body uh, uh play field was really novel and had had a you know a, huge cram a lot of stuff on it and, uh, so Steve in, in uh, you know being Steve Ritchie um, in his spare time he would um, he'd be laying out p- pinball play fields. and so we would just kind of get together after hours and you know and have a couple of beers and uh, um, and just hang out and you know and dream about the future of pinball and, and Steve would be you know laying out these cool new designs you know trying all kinds of new stuff and um, and you know, just dreaming about you know, getting his own game in production, and eventually he he had drawn up an entire playfield uh, for the game Airborne Adventure and presented it to um, to management, and uh, and and it got approved for uh, for production. So Steve became you know from prototype uh, builder to game designer.
1: What did you think of the game?
2: I loved it, you know, and I, uh, you know, just jumped at the t- chance to uh, program it. So uh, that was, you know, just uh, it was magical, and uh, uh, you know, we did a lot of work for the sounds and the effects, and uh, you know, had some of the first kind of combined effects where sounds and lights were synchronized, and and uh, you know, I thought I thought the game was was
1: a blast. So. On, did you have to do create any like if you needed sound and I mean did every game have a new soundboard board and, and and new technology and sound
2: no um, you know there was a standard there was a sound synthesizer you know this hardware you know TTL synthesizer unit which had you know some programmability um, you could you know have different uh, waveforms different frequency tables and so forth that uh, you know you would the programmer would, uh, you know, create these different uh, sounds. And uh, so, you you know, you'd feed the synthesizers different parameters and, and get different sounds. And so it was really fun to, you know, learn about uh, the sounds and, uh, uh, and, and to just innovate and do new sounds. At this time, nobody else was doing solid-state sounds. Everybody still had chimes and bells. So that was one of the big, big things with the Atari game was it had these synthesized uh, electronic sounds that were just, you know, really cool. Very spacey and everything.
1: Now, how was Superman?
2: Superman was, you know, just uh, more the same. Um, you know, we uh, um, put the, uh, you know, Steve put the play field together and, you know, we worked along, I worked alongside of them and we you know, did all kinds of interesting things with the sounds and the effects. And um, funny, we actually put it out on on test. We it was some, you know, we didn't know if we we're gonna get the Superman license or not. So actually, the original test Whitewood, it was called Rockstar, hmm. was gonna be. You know, that was like the c- code name. And so we actually put a Whitewood out on location. You know, which is the playf- play a bare field with no artwork on it whatsoever, other than you know some lettering and uh, um, on the lights just to indicate what you're supposed to shoot for and so forth. And, uh, actually, it made a ton of money as a whiteboard on location. Huh. So we knew we had a good game, and uh, um, we always wanted to make it Superman, um, and it, I guess, it, the odd thing was is both of us ended, had, had quit actually before that game. Uh, certainly Steve quit, and I think I worked a little bit, but I, even I think I had left before the game actually hit production. Because they had actually revamped their entire, uh, I think, electronics and uh, uh, mechanical systems. I think Superman went out with, like, linear flippers as opposed to uh, um, their crazy rotary flippers. And so they had, Superman actually had a lot of, you know, was a pretty refined product and had some pretty good components on it.
1: Did you now... W- tell me about the exodus from Atari and to Williams. I mean... Steve left first, and then you followed,
2: yeah, so he left in seventy uh, eight and um, basically uh I mean there was some uh, disenchantment uh, I mean we could see that the uh you know we were are you know we were really excited by our, our you know designs and concepts and and the games would make tremendous money initially, but then they'd always blow up and catch on fire or fail and and so the sales weren't as good as they could have been and and we could kind of see the whole the company was shifting obviously, you know, away from Pinball and, and, you know, really focusing on the video games, which was where their their bread was buttered. So kind of the writing was on the wall that uh Pinball was kind of on its way out.
1: Did you wanna work in the video game division of Atari?
2: You know, it's funny, at that time video games were so simple I, I, they didn't really appeal to me um, you know like the Pong type games and, and even some of the early driving games and uh, probably, I mean the first game that really had any kind of appeal was Breakout hmm. um, and that was kind of a it was a fairly fairly interesting game but again I mean it was just a bunch of bricks you know I mean uh, <laughs> it just it didn't really have uh, I mean, it was kind of like a video game was something you'd play for you know 20 minutes and then you were done you know so I was still you know very much into pinball and uh, um, there was uh, the guy who was running Williams uh, in Chicago Michael Stroll um, somehow had gotten heard of Steve Ritchie and came out to to California to you know Silicon Valley to to recruit Steve Ritchie Hmm. and uh, so you know he offered him like you know three times what he was making at Atari, you know, and I was, and I think Steve, you know, had a pretty uh, had a pretty easy decision there.
1: Now, as far as pay at, at Atari was, well, first, two prong question: was their pay equitable for the time? And also, did they give you like if they sold a lot of a game, did you get like a, a bonus or a kickback?
2: You know, I don't think, uh, at least in the pinball department, we never got any bonuses. Uh, but uh, I think there was some kind of bonus plan out there, but it, I, it was it was kind of a catch twenty two bonus plan, you know. It was like uh, something like those Hollywood contracts where they give you a percentage of the profits or something. <laughs> and it was like, no matter what you did, the the game lost money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One of those kind of things. Um, but uh, the uh, you know, the, I think the real motivation, uh, I think, going to Chicago was just the opportunity to really, you know, have a true pinball factory supporting your designs, you know, and, and to, I mean, the guys in Chicago knew how to build pinball games, but they were at, they were pretty clueless as far as game design and like and uh, software. And so it was, uh, you know, it's natural for, you know, Steve and then later myself to, to head out there, you know, just, uh, um, there was just such a need for for that kind of talent, and there was such a great infrastructure for for pinball sorry, at, at, in uh, Chicago.
1: I, I forgot to ask you: the Superman license. Who was uh, I mean? Did did you have any involvement with actually getting that license? Was it a hard license to get? And did you meet any of the personalities?
2: You know, I, I didn't. Uh, the you know that was all you know. Some guys, some guys upstairs, and uh, the uh, it was funny because Atari got sold. To Time Warner while I was there, and Time Warner I think owned DC Comics I believe, and so it was like the same company actually owned it. So you'd think it would be pretty easy, but the way often these these big companies are run, and it's I guess for the best really is um, you know everything's kind of out to the highest bidder. Even if you, you know if you're in the division of Time Warner, you still have to bid higher for the superman license than say got labor somebody else you know hmm. so there was it was kind of up there was like you know some kind of negotiate you know internal corporate negotiations about getting this title and so there was a lot of you know like would we get it would we not get it you know even 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 it's in the same company i mean it was crazy
1: now when you got to williams do you i mean do you remember your first week what was that like was it i mean was it like uh wow this is a completely different work environment in the in the econ- or the uh corporate environment was i imagine it's got to be completely different than atari
2: um you know actually it wasn't uh it was a little more ordered but it was uh in that era it was a very much a kind of a seat of your pants era and uh Coming to Williams, I, I remember I, I came in March of one year, and, uh, you know, you come from California, which is beautiful and green and warm and wonderful. You come to Chicago, and the snow is, like, piled up three feet high, and everything is just gray and dirty and, you know, and greasy, and, you know, you go to the Williams factory, which was, you know, built in 1942, and and the, the walls are painted like the same green, that they you know when the government paid for the paint you know in 1943 you know for the wartime production that's paint still on the wall you know there's rats that have been in there since 1946 you know (laughs) (laughs) and remember the vending machines they uh, they would never put any uh, candy bars in the bottom two rows of the vending machine because the rats could get up and eat those you know so you'd have to you know they'd have to have them high up in the vending machine and uh
1: you know it's just i think
2: it was the most depressing place imaginable um from you know certain aspects you know just it was just so bleak and and uh you know gray and cold and you know everything's old and rotting and um but uh you know obviously the 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 the, the wonderful part of it was um you know just you know you're the you're the kid in the candy store and here you have this amazing factory you know that's going to build your games you know and, uh, so that was, it was, it was, uh, it was cool. I mean, it was just to see all the old, uh, guys on the line, you know, the guys who have been testing pinball games for, you know, 47 years and, and, uh, just all the, uh, kind of the esprit de corps and the, you know, you'd get to know the, the women that did all the soldering of the games and, uh, you know, they could like have three conversations and be, you know, soldering 27 connectors behind their back and, you know, and, and think nothing of it, you know. <laughs> um, it, was, it was pretty amazing, just the whole pinball factory. Uh, you had to Every day you had to walk through this huge factory to get to your office.
1: Now, um, Firepower was the first game you worked on at, at Williams, and, and this was a, a Steve Ritchie game. Did you come in right at the beginning or kind of in the middle of the project?
2: Well, actually, that wasn't the first game.
1: Oh, okay, what was?
2: Um, the first game I worked on was a game called Laser Ball. I don't know if you're very familiar with that title. It was a wide body. Uh, it was a Barry
1: Osler game. Right. Yes, I, I am familiar with it,
2: and uh, and so that was uh, I I, I, uh, I had some fun with you know working. The Williams had this this wonderful sound synthesizing system, which was just basically a microprocessor tied to a digital analog converter. So you could write any program you you could think of to create sounds, which is amazing. And uh so laser ball was kind of my chance to to um you know, write some new sound programs and uh um so that you know, I kinda of introduced some really cool sounds in that ga- in that game which um the sound system and it's amazing, the entire sound system with uh the data for thirty two sounds occupied five hundred and twelve bytes of memory. Hmm. And uh it was pretty uh I'm pretty proud uh, fitting all those sounds into 512 bytes.
1: <laughs> now that was the like the System Six soundboard that was in the lower cabinet that had the switch between one set of sounds and another set of sounds, right? Right.
2: They had obviously they had the um, they were concerned obviously when in the early days that uh, some people wouldn't like the new electronic sounds, so they had a, a switch, you know, that would give you chimes. <laughs> They're really stupid sounding, you know computer synthesized chimes you know but i don't think anybody ever flipped that switch but you know, it was just one of those management kind of things like oh my god those sounds are weird (laughs) (laughs) people want chimes (laughs) so they had the switch i don't think anybody ever threw the switch though
1: no what they did is they hit the switch by accident and then couldn't figure out why the game sounded like crap (laughs)
2: exactly (laughs) (laughs) but uh so that, that was really fun so in laser ball kind of got that uh, that whole thing going and, you know, learning the system, learning how to
1: program. and Okay, we're going to take a little break from our interview with Eugene Jarvis and we'll be back right after this message. Hey George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to. You're going to have to go to com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it.
0: What's the deal with that?
1: All right, George, i got to go. got to call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. Okay, we're back with Eugene Jarvis.
2: Firepower was, the, uh, was my big project there, and uh, I guess really kind of why I came out there, Steve... Uh, had been had Steven just finished a game called Flash which was just an amazing amazing game I think to this day I think it was kind of the game that really um, you know ignoring Atari and their early games which weren't really that refined Flash really brought the electronic era in for pinball in my mind um just with its effects flash lamps and sound effects uh
1: yeah, one of the first games with like a real background sound—the
2: background sound and the, um, the uh, you know the modern style, you know the Steve Ritchie uh, action type uh, layouts and stuff, and you um, know it was uh, it was cool, it was amazing coming from the white body to the narrow body game, and Steve, uh, you know how he was able to cram almost everything he crammed into a white body into a narrow body.
1: And yeah, and the narrow body's played better, too, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, the narrow, the, the the problem with the, uh, you know, it's funny, there was a magic there with that dimension, you know, and, and the way it corresponds with the power on a flipper. The problem is, you you bring a game too wide, those wide shots are always on the end of the flipper, and they're just kind of crappy shots. Just don't feel good, so you really don't need anything more than a narrow body, you know, when all came, when all was said and done, the narrow body was the the ideal uh you know kind of the golden mean of pinball design so steve uh you know just you know with his layout of flash which i guess kind of stole a shot i think it was from four million bc or something the entry shot which uh, kind of the cross playfield entry shot
1: right right yeah
2: which was awesome i love that i love that shot um and uh so that, that was, you know, I was just so excited to be working with Steve, and, and uh, so anyway, his programmer, Randy Pfeiffer, who did all this wonderful stuff, um, and unfortunately, Steve always would get into fights with his programmers, and, you know, he was very demanding, and and programs would just get burnt out working under him And so Randy just, you know, packed his bags and said, you know, fuck you, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and so Steve was like freaked out, like, damn, you know, I need a programmer, and so that's why he, he called me to get me to Chicago. But you know he was not ready with firepower, uh, so I did laser ball first. And uh, but uh, um, and I guess I did work on some sound effects on the game Gorgar, which uh, like the, the heartbeat of Gorgar and some of that stuff. Uh, I worked on that while Steve was finishing up the layout for firepower. But fire—we were so excited by firepower because um, we wanted to bring back multi-ball to pinball. And you know that was just uh, we had so much fun playing the old you know the Bowl Valley Fireball games and the I think what's it like Wizard and, you know some of the classic uh, Valley um, multi-ball tables from the uh, the early
1: '70s. Yeah, four million BC um, Fireball and um, uh, Nippet are the three. You know the three classic multi-ball bally EMS that people remember.
2: Yeah, who designed those?
1: Uh, now a guy named Ted Zale did Fireball. Uh and Ted unfortunately has long passed. Uh I don't know who did the other two. I don't remember.
2: Anyway, those those are amazing. You know, inspirations. And so that was the the whole idea of firepower was kind of to to get that back, that excitement. You know, of multi-ball and uh, back into pinball, and and uh, you know, with the electronic age, uh, getting all the the late, you know, it just it just seemed like you know here was going to be a masterwork. You know, we could, you know, kind of synthesize the best of you know twenty, you know, twenty years of pinball and and put it into one game. And uh, there was, uh, I mean, it sounds ridiculous these days when you think about it, but. I mean, there was a lot of worry, you know, from a technical standpoint. You know, keeping track of the balls and and uh, how do you know? You know, a lot of software issues when you get, when you when you have you know three balls out on the play field and you're locking them and you know all this stuff and uh, uh, you have to construct a ball trough of multiple switches to sense all the balls. And, so there's a lot of there's a lot of work on the software side. Uh, which uh, you know at the time was seemed like a lot of work and everything. Uh, I mean today you, you almost you know you laugh and go ah I could program that in, you know ten minutes, but um, it was a big deal and uh, um, and we wanted to come up with a way that multiple players could play the game and you know kind of share the locked balls and so we came up with, you know this all this all logic of um, you know what holes would be lit for locks and if a ball was already locked in the hole then you'd light some other hole and, you know, all that stuff. And at a certain point you'd kick out a ball that was locked in a hole, you know, for the other player to play. Um, You know, very involved logic, but allowed, you know, each player to have his own ball locks and and, uh, and play, you know, pretty much without interfering too much with the other players.
1: Yeah, the one thing about um, Firepower was it was really the first game where um the 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 rules were really um for a multi ball game first multi ball game where the rules really 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 made sense and they were simple um but difficult to achieve but they just the whole everything played together like e- even with flash you know the rules on flash are i, I you know they're either though they 're not you know, real deep, they're they're a little funky, you know what I mean? They're not as refined as like firepower was like, oh, this is the way it's really supposed to be.
2: Yeah, firepower was it was just the, the unity of the game. Right. You know, and, and the absolute simplicity of it. Um where you just you knew what the hell you had to do and it looked easy. That was the other thing. Yeah. You know, where you got those six targets right up front in the middle. I mean, shit, you can't hit those, you know? The right. right. And and uh but it was just you know obviously there was several you know just killer drain shots off that thing, and you know in every table you'd have to you know learn you know what angle would drain you and what wouldn't, and you know take the the safe shot and then try to hit the you know you could you'd light the the kicker um the save kicker you know if you hit a bank you know so you you wanted to you know get that thing lit and um so it was uh you know the fire power thing was, you know, to get up hot, high and get your multiplier going. You know, it had really great flow and he really wanted to um pretty much uh it made it forced you to, you know, move the ball around the field and, and shoot almost every target on the game.
1: And, no uh
2: but just the overriding challenge, you know, it was so interesting where, you know, pinball was really about score, you know, in the in the old days pretty much. And, uh, other than, you know, you try to get a special, like, if you think about the game, Captain Fantastic, which is kind of cool, where you pound away on those, on uh, the drop targets, and then you pound away enough on them, the specials would start lighting, and, you know, it was pretty cool. And so, in some ways, you could just play Captain Fantastic just trying to pound the targets and, and light the special. And so, Firepower, it was kind of like you pound the targets, and then, um, you know, light the lock holes, and you have to make the lock shots, and if you could get it all in there and get all three balls there, boom! You know the game would just explode. Um, you know with the whole multi-ball countdown and the, the sound effects, and I mean it was just it was just amazing. And you know the background sound would be would be getting up to some crazy high pitch. And and finally, when you got multi-ball, I mean it was just like you didn't really care what your score was or whether you had a replay or not. Or it was just it was just you wanted to get multi-ball. You know, and uh, it was just this, all-consuming goal and it was interesting there was a guy at uh, Williams at the time his name was Ron Krause and he called it the V-ball and his, his way of playing the game was he'd get multiple and then he'd just like make a V with his hands and then and, and just like let them all drain
0: because
2: <laughs> huh? I mean after he got I mean it's like it's all anticlimactic after that you know <laughs>
1: Yeah. Now, wait, I, I got a bone to pick with you, though. That The one thing that's weird about firepower and all the multi-ball games of that era is that if you don't have all three balls in the ball trough, you cannot start a game, and this this must have just confused the crap out of operators. Because I know people that own the games. You know, they either either one of the trough switches is broken, or they, they they can't find the third ball, and they they can't start a game. And they're like, oh, they, the game turns on, and it works, but I can't get it to start. You know, so. You know, I mean, like newer games, like 90s games, if there's a ball missing, eventually it'll let you play with, you know, a ball missing because, it, you know, it it doesn't want to hamper uh, income, as it may be. But was that, like, a big decision in, in the programming?
2: Well, I think it was, yeah. I think, you know, you were... Since this thing was so new, you wanted to, you know, eliminate, you know, unknown conditions and... uh so it was kind of like, okay, you got to have the fucking balls in the game. And, and also, part of the problem was, you know, operators would just put one ball in the game or something, you know. They wouldn't put three balls in the game. You know, so you wanted to force them to get three balls in the game. You wanted to make sure the switches were working because if those switches weren't working, the game was going to fuck up sooner or later anyway, you know. Right. And so it was kind of just forcing the operator to make sure the goddamn game was working, you know, <laughs> and had three balls in it. Because it was just, it was it wouldn't be, you know, since it was just such a, the only thing to do on Firepower, I mean, the whole game is getting ball, you know? Right. And if there aren't three balls, and if one of the balls is stuck up on, on a plastic somewhere, you know, um, you're not going to have very much fun playing it, you know? <laughs> so it was kind of a way of forcing the, the game operator to at least have the game in some form of, of working order. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I guess too. It would make the programming a lot more involved if you, if there was one ball missing, you'd have to try and do everything in a two ball multi ball, and it, it would probably just make the programming that much more, you know, complicated.
2: Yeah, you just didn't want it to. You know, we were we were having a, that era. We were just having enough trouble just making the fucking thing work. You know.
1: Now on on the the soundboard and the the CPU on um, on that era of Williams System Six was uh, what a 6802 slash 6808 depending on you know what you got was that um, how was the development platform at Williams compared to what you were doing at Atari? Well,
2: actually, it was fairly similar. We used the uh, the Motorola Exercisers, which you know when I think about it today, I mean they were there were pieces of crap. I mean. <laughs> it was I mean, these things would sell for like i mean it, it's hard to imagine but they would sell for like thirty thousand dollars you know in that I mean you think about thirty thousand dollars a today to buy a computer right. with like a one floppy disk i mean you you you'd gag you know <laughs> but thirty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty is probably like three hundred thousand dollars today so imagine if you had to go to a computer store and buy a computer for three hundred thousand dollars you know I mean there's just it was ridiculously. It was. They were so expensive, and they were, you know, just terrible, unreliable, you know, horrible things to work with. You know, and you just you would you would rip your hair out on a daily basis. You know, just trying to get the thing to work. You know. And, so I mean,
1: was, now, after after you did Firepower, you you kind of went off with with Larry DeMar and did this um, the VidKid thing, right?
2: Well, now that was uh, after Firepower. I did Defender. At
1: Williams, well, you did Defender the video game, not the pinball.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Defender the video game, and, and then after Defender, then Larry and I went off and, and did mid Kids.
1: Now, when you did Defender at at Williams, were, did they did you get any kind of bonus for sales or anything, or were you just paid you know by hour or whatever?
2: Well, you know, again in that era, um, uh, they, I think they, you know there was not really uh, there was no formal bonus plan. And uh I think, you know, if you were really uh you know, I think every now and then management might give you, you know, five or ten grand or something. Um and I think Steve Steve was kind of at the forefront of, you know, you know, getting, you know, contracts and uh you know, sticking up for his, his uh his rights and stuff and uh so I think Steve might have had some kind of bonus going but um I think the rest of us. I don't think we we had any kind of bonus whatsoever. Anything formal hmm. um, at the end of the year, we might get a little check or something.
1: So now, how now, you and Larry are doing the Larry's obviously doing the pinball thing too. Who's coming up with like you know the blue flipper ROM, you know, architecture and the you know in the in the yellow flipper ROM, the green flipper ROM? Is that you and Larry?
2: The um, this was. Uh um And what era was
1: this? Well, the yellow flipper ROM was William system what system four I wanna say. Then green flipper ROM was what Williams system six, like Gorgar and Flash, and then the blue flipper ROM is Williams system seven. You know, that's like their you know, the system architecture and then you know you so you'd have the two system ROMs that were the same for every game within that system, and then you'd have I C fourteen which was the actual program ROM for the actual game.
2: Right, so I think the early ROMs were, actually they were, um, they had been programmed by um, Paul DeSalt and Ron Kraus and uh, perhaps Randy Pfeiffer.
1: Because the guy that did that Williams System 3, I just want to tear his head off, because you know, changing those dip switches that changed, yeah, change, yeah, to change the ball from three to five balls, oh my god. Oh, it was
2: insane, I mean, they did the most horrible shit ever um i I can't imagine operators you know actually dealing with that um but that was you know for the mind of a programmer you know um, certainly no human engineering there and and uh I think when I came in, which was you know they'd been you know doing you know four or five games by the time I came in um the uh we pretty much just uh you know the early games uh um you know we pretty much just ignored all the code in the ROMs and just wrote everything, you know, in the uh, in the game program. The game game prom, you know, so <laughs> it was it was pretty much dead code at that point other than, you know, the the horrible test mode and things like that. So uh, they eventually uh Larry DeMar eventually uh, rewrote all that stuff. Um and uh you know kind of brought things uh you know, in the in the era of the Black Knight, maybe a few. Uh, I think maybe the Black Knight started. I think the Black Knight started a new era of some system or ROM or something, and and actually the stuff became you know usable at that point.
1: Yeah, Black Knight was Williams System Seven, which was certainly more usable. System Six was pretty good too. You know, the green ROM, the green flipper ROMs, the blue flipper ROMs, both the diagnostics were were pretty pretty darn usable and 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 made. Sense, so you guys had to do all the pinball programming in a single twenty seven sixteen e that must have been kind of challenging,
2: yeah you know, it was it was there was uh you know you were really working uh you know hard to conserve bytes and I mean there would be times uh when you know you'd be short you know three bytes you know and you'd go hunting through your program to find you know three bytes of code. <laughs> And uh, often you would introduce, you know, three new bugs by removing those three bytes. <laughs> so it was uh, it was very challenging. You know, it's crazy to imagine, like today, you know, where like the, you know, your uh, cursor on on a, on a PC is probably you know thirty two kilobytes or something, you know, and and we were doing you know entire pinball programs in like two kilobytes. I mean, hmm. it just it, it, you can't even relate to it today. I mean, it, it seems like the amount of data is just so minuscule that it's hard to imagine anything could have been done at all
1: well that's why windows runs like crap is because it takes 32k to move a cursor
2: exactly you know and that, and i mean it's kind of sad i mean where you take uh, you know some of the old computers of that era and they would actually boot up faster than today's computers and the spreadsheets would run faster and you know you just kind of scratch your head and go wow that was running at one megahertz it has better performance than this computer I now have that's running at, you know, 3 gigahertz. You know, it's like, are we making progress? You know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, now tell me about the, on Defender, I noticed that you said something about, like, you you know, well, maybe this is more of a video game architecture question. Like, when you're programming a video game in the Defender Stargate era, and, you, you know, how did you guys determine the hardware to use like in pinball your hardware was pretty much static but in the video games you know you could get you know a new video processor or a new you know customized whatever to do to do something you know it seemed much more cutting edge
2: yeah you know it uh i guess certainly pinball was very standardized and uh video could evolve a little faster but you kind of ended up it's interesting how you did end up kind of working a system uh even Certainly, in the in the early days of, of Williams video, um, once we came up with the Defender hardware system, um, that was really used. Uh, that system was used for um, refined a little bit, but the basic system was very similar for Defender, Stargate, Robotron, Joust, Sinistar. Um, a lot of those games, the systems were were similar, slightly different. Um, I think Defender and Stargate were almost the same. But um, when we designed the Defender hardware, um, you know, first of all, I didn't know shit about video games, you know, being uh, even though I had worked at Atari, I never had programmed one. And, uh, you know, we were all pinball guys. So um, the approach was, you know, Hey, we needed to crank out a game, and you know you have like nine months, and it's like okay, we'll, we'll just throw a throw a processor out there, try to get the most powerful processor we could at the time, which was a sixty-eight hundred nine, and then throw you know a lot of memory out there, and just have the processor uh, basically move around the the bits on the screen, and so basically uh, the the Williams system, which was amazingly primitive. Um, kind of a brute force, very primitive approach um, was it just, you know, the processor was out there moving the sprites around the screen.
1: Hmm. Now, were you, like when you did this, did you, you weren't doing anything with sprites or anything? It was just turn a pixel on and turn it off, move it?
2: So there were, I guess you could call them virtual sprites. Um, but yeah, so the, you know, basically the processor had to go out there and read and write um, every every bit, on the
1: screen right you had a you had like uh you know i had an apple II and i used to you know monkey around with it or whatever and you had a certain area in memory that was you know the 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 text memory which was like 400 to 7 ff and then you had you know the 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 high res menu memory which i don't know it was 4000 to 7 ffff and you know whatever and you just would put a byte there and you know or change a bit and and change it back, and is that basically what you were doing with the video games?
2: Yeah, with Defender, with the Williams system. Um, most of the other companies had more advanced hardware, maybe less flexible, but more advanced, maybe in the sense of uh, hardware sprites and you know more hardware uh, graphical features. Um, but kind of, I guess, the cool thing about Defender system being completely software driven system was that it allowed to. Allowed us to do all those amazing special effects that really made the game. Since the processor was moving every pixel, you could have amazingly complicated, uh, you know, explosions and uh, you know, different special effects. And, uh, so it was really, really amazing. Uh, you know, we really razzled and dazzled the world with uh, some really cool stuff that no one had ever seen before.
1: Now, why did you and Larry decide to kind of kick off and 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 kind of leave Williams and do this vid kids thing?
2: You know that was uh you know we were i guess uh you know the uh you know we saw you know defender had come and it was you know amazing success and you know we could see that uh obviously the future was in video at the, at this point, and that's where you know a lot of cool things were happening and we, uh after Cinder became a big success, Williams just started hiring, you know, hundreds of, not hundreds, but tens, probably hired 40 or 50 programmers, you know, and they just go, well, if, you know, we had, hired Jervis uh, and Damar and, uh, you know, and they did all these hit games, man, we'll just hire another 50 guys, you know, <laughs> we'll get 50 hit games. And so it became, it started getting very bureaucratic and, you know, there's all kinds of managers and politics and and this, that, and the other, and, and uh, so we just you know decided, you know what, um, we could probably have a lot more fun and make a lot more money just going out on our own. So that's what we did.
1: So now, so did you buy one of these thirty thousand dollar development stations?
2: Um, as it turned out, um, you know, we took off, and then uh, Williams uh, called us up and said, "Hey, you know, why don't you guys do the next game <laughs> on the outside?" You know. So then we did uh, Stargate. Um, on the outside, and uh, um, and so they actually gave us a $30,000 development system.
1: And, w- and what, you mean you hauled one out of Williams and put it in your house?
2: Yeah. So we made made, uh, Stargate was made, and uh, Larry had a two-bedroom condo, and the second bedroom was uh, the development room. And uh, he worked during the night, and I worked during the day on the same $30,000 computer. So he had, like, two shifts. So it's kind of like, you know, nowadays, you know, where they have guys that work in India and guys that work in America, you know.
1: Right.
2: And day and night. We were kind of the vanguard of that, you know.
1: <laughs> now, but this development system didn't have a color monitor hooked up to it. So, I mean, how were you interfacing the development system to, you know, whatever the hardware that... Obviously, the hardware was already set in stone at that point, right?
2: Right. Well, it was the same, actually, very similar system to what we use at Atari, where you it's called an emulator, where you... Basically, the processor... Instead of a processor plugging into your hardware, you would remove the processor and plug in this cable that was then connected to the development station. Mm, Okay. So the development computer was replaced the processor on on uh, on the game board.
1: So you and Larry did Stargate and you did Robotron, which were obviously huge hits for Williams. Yeah. And financially... Did this really was this the right decision to do it outside of Williams?
2: Yeah, it, it tr- truly was. I mean, uh, um, obviously, you know, when you did a hit game, and you know, and you're getting some kind of uh, royalty on it, I mean, it was amazing. So, um, we certainly, uh, you know, did did very well there, and uh, um, had a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, it uh, it's amazing how in that era. You know, you could have two or three designers and design a game that would gross, you know, $100, $200 million in sales. Um, you look at the economics today, and you would have maybe 100 designers, you know, or 200 designers designing a game that will gross, you know, $50 million. So it's like the, the profitability of video game design, you know, has, has uh, really um, degraded over the last 30 years
1: but were you and larry smart enough to negotiate a, a you know a strong enough contract to really make this work
2: we had we you know luckily we did we had some we had a a, a great friend of ours was uh uh legal guys named uh nate Dardick and he uh uh unfortunately was uh he didn't make too many friends at uh, williams but he was our friend <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so we had we had a great time and uh um, you know, kind of worked ourselves to death, though. You know, and, and uh, after doing uh, um, Robotron and Stargate and, and then uh, did another game called Blaster and I think a couple of their games, and we just kind of worked ourselves to death. You know, we had a company was like two or three people and, and, you know, it was finally, you know, I guess it reached the point where, we, you know, we realized, you know, three guys cannot do a video game anymore, you know, um, the days of, you know, you know, it just uh, the amount of artwork, the amount of production value. Um, we could even see it in that era in the in the mid '80s, where um, the the business was evolving and uh, you know becoming more and more Hollywood, more and more you know specialized. You know, you you could not have. I mean, Defender. I, I did a lot of the I did a lot of the program, a lot of the sound, a lot of the artwork. You know, you, you'd uh, um. You could, you know, everybody was getting specialized. There was guys who did just artwork, guys who did sounds, guys who did program, and it became, then each of those were specialized. You know, a guy would do the the soundtrack, the music. Another guy would do the sound effects. You know, another guy would do the speech. You know, a guy would do the, you know, the special effects programming. Another guy would do the physics. Another guy would do the, you know, the uh, artificial intelligence. You know, so you you, you created, you know millions and millions of specialized jobs, you know, and each one had their own person. And that's, you know, that's how that evolved from two guys designing a video game to a hundred.
1: Now, when these companies go and they do this, like, these reissues, like the the Win, the Williams Arcade Classics, they, you know, you guys are basically still making royalties off these games, right?
2: We do, you know, every now and then we get, you know, 50 bucks in the mail, you know, and... uh
1: 50 bucks?
2: You know, it's... <laughs> A little bit here and there, you know. Sometimes more, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's you know, it is good. Uh, it's it's fun, you know, and uh, um, I, I just love I love seeing people still playing the game, you know.
1: You guys are freaking geniuses! <laughs> that whole VidKids thing, you guys, that was like, man, you guys were just thinking that one out, good.
2: Man, it, it was uh, you know. It was it, the fun thing is you know to see. Kids today, you know, a kid playing Defender for the first time or playing RoboTron, you know, just uh, you know, I've seen players that have been playing RoboTron for 25 years, you know, and still right. into it. Right. Um, you know, it's uh, that is, uh, it's just so satisfying as a designer, you know, to to see the games live on and and have new life and uh, uh, now in the Xbox Live um, program, uh, you know. uh, You can download, you know, Robotron to your, you know, Xbox 360 and and play there. And, uh, um, you know, obviously with MAME out there, um, if you know what you're doing, you could play, you know, any of, you know, hundreds of thousands of old games, which is, it's just, it's wonderful to see the old games uh, continue to be enjoyed and and, uh, to uh, be... uh, you know, designers continuing to be inspired, new designers being inspired by some of the old games.
1: Well, like, speaking of MAME, how did you guys feel when, you know, there were, you know, people making these MAME cabinets that, you know, would play, you know, hundreds of games, including yours, basically, though, without any sort of, you know, royalty for for you guys? Did you guys feel slighted at all with that?
2: You know, I never really did. Um, I'm sure, uh, you know, some corporate types are, are trying to figure out how to make money out of it, but um, you know, I, I just sometimes you just gotta uh let things let the let people have fun. You know, it's just like you know, if you're uh you know, Paul McCartney and people are, you know, downloading your tunes off of uh the internet, I mean, you know, what the hell can you do? I mean, you can go out and make an ass of yourself and start suing people or you can just, you know, you know, count your blessings, you know, and,
1: uh... You you didn't mean Paul McCartney. You meant Metallica, I think.
2: Okay, that's right, exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, Paul didn't do anything, but, uh... Exactly, you know, and and I think you just got to, uh... I mean, are they going to, you know... I mean, you got to realize if something's for free, there's going to be a lot more distribution of something that's free than if there's something they had to pay for. Right. You know, so are you really losing a sale? You know, I don't know. I... I, it's hard. It's hard to say if you've really lost a sale. I mean, the guy has a main cabinet has you know 100,000 games. I mean, would he have bought those 100,000 games? I don't think so. If he had to pay you know maybe you know anything more than you know a half a cent apiece, you know. Right. <laughs> so I don't, you know there at some point you know there's the money is just you know not really an issue, and I think you have to look you know more about the game and. and and having people enjoy your game, you know, and, and having your game live on uh, for future generations to to, to enjoy.
1: Now, in '84, you came back to pinball and did the space shuttle. Was this at the time when you and Larry were just burned out from the vid kids thing and you guys actually came back as Williams employees?
2: Um, that, you know, it's interesting. I went off to um, California to do uh, the study at Stanford, and uh, we kind of just. Gave up on, you know, it's kind of mutually closed down, vid kids. And, you know, we had a great time and, and we just we were just so burnt out. And, uh, Barry. Um, uh, Joe Camico, you know, it's funny, all three of us actually had, were in some restaurant in Chicago. Actually, it was Grover's Oyster Bar, and we were, uh, which is no longer there, but we were, it was a classic, you know, drawing out on a napkin, you know, what we wanted to see in the next pinball game. And, uh, so, Space Shuttle was born and um and Joe and Larry um did the game at Williams. I um I ended up going to California but I did the sound effects from California.
1: Now, I heard that, that um Joe and Larry were like on and, and Pat Lawler were on like the same bowling team or something. I think
2: so, yeah. There was uh, it was called the Pinheads. And actually <laughs> I had one of their shirts still so. <laughs>
1: So you weren't on the bowling team? I was. You know, I'm not a great
2: bowler. I think uh, I went to a couple of times, and I think they stopped. Uh, they stopped telling me about when the next uh, match was.
1: <laughs> now, how was it working with Chemical?
2: You know, Joe. I mean, this was. You know, obviously, you know, before Joe was, uh, you know, the famous guy he is today. Um, I mean, it was it was great. I mean, he was just a, just a kid, you know, with with. You know, brimming full of, of of great ideas and enthusiasm for pinball and uh, games in general, and uh, so yeah, it was it was really fun. I mean, I, I, my my involvement with the game was you know the initial you know helping you know kind of with the initial design and then and then doing the sounds and you know obviously uh, uh, Joe and Larry and I think did Barry uh, also work on that game too? Yes. Yes. Um, and Barry, you know, I to, you know did did the uh, you know they had the heavy lifting on on that game. Um, but uh, that was you know it's great it's it's always a joy to work with Joe
1: now so you went to Stanford and you were getting a master's right yeah and um, but in 86 you had the time to do work with Richie again on high speed
2: right I did again I did the the audio um, and uh, you know worked on uh, I was you know very still very much interested in a lot of different uh, audio synthesizing programs and that was one of the last games that used the old uh, audio board and uh and I was getting into some really crazy stuff like fm audio synthesis and you know different strange pulse width modulation programs and stuff and uh um it, it was just it was, it was it was fun just to um i think i got like 50 bucks of sound or something so i just you know go in my uh bedroom and crank up the computer and just you know type in random numbers and not so random numbers and just try to come up with you know a sound you know and maybe you know within a half an hour an hour i could pretty much come up with a pretty cool sound you know so then it was like 50 bucks all right you know
0: <laughs>
2: and then, <laughs> and then uh, you know in a good day you might get you know you might come up with nine or ten good sounds you know and, and uh you know and after you know a couple weeks work you'd, you'd uh pretty much have the game done
1: Now, how were you developing the sound in California? I mean, what was your development station now?
2: So I had a, um, uh, what was known as, it's funny, Larry and I, when we went to form BitKids, we bought this other, you know, since we had such horrible luck with those Motorola systems, we found this other computer. It was called a GIMIX, G-I-M-I-X, which was a 6809 computer. And I remember, it's funny, I remember when we were making that decision that just about this time the IBM PC came out, you know, we went down a computer store and we looked at the IBM PC and we just go, Man, what a overpriced piece of shit, you know. The thing, you know, had you know, was so expensive and the graphics were horrible and you know, like, who would ever buy this thing, you know? So we bought the Gamex computer, you know. And uh <laughs> Um which was, you know, a much nicer system and uh, ran with the Motorola 6809 and everything. But uh I guess uh, you know, history has not uh endorsed our choice in computers but uh, it was a really reliable great system that uh, that we used to develop uh, 680609 programs
1: yeah I, I was you know i was an apple II guy and i remember when the uh, pc came out i i thought the same thing as you and then a friend of mine he worked in california uh at a at a uh, at a medical company he called me up and he goes hey i know this guy in japan he's making ibm pc motherboards he's gonna send me a couple you want one so like he sends me one of these boards and i'm down buying all the all the you know putting all the sockets on the board and you know we made up our own ibm and it turned out when it was all said and done it cost us like a hundred dollars less than if we just went and bought the damn thing <laughs> but it was cool <laughs> yeah it was fun it was something to do <laughs> But, yeah, what a piece of junk.
2: <laughs> I know. It's sad. It was, a, you know, they had the segmented memory and everything. I mean, it was a nightmare. I, it's amazing how certain things get standardized. It's more political, you know?
1: Well, yeah, because, yeah, the... um, It was kind of like, you know, when they stayed with the, the 6809, you know, with the WPC stuff... You know the WPC pinball stuff, and it, it's you know you can only access the sixty-eight hundred nine can only access you know sixty-four K at any one time. So you got a you got a page memory, everything. I I would have thought that you know that would have been you know a kind of a big hassle too.
2: Yeah, right. Well, the you know IBM PC had the same problem. Right. Um, obviously, the sixty-eight thousand didn't. That was the uh, that was our dream processor, which uh, you know Apple ended up using that one, and uh, you know it was. Unfortunately, IBM won that war. Although maybe Apple's gonna gonna win the maybe they're gonna win the next round.
1: Yeah, you, yeah, you never know. So now, F14 Tomcat. What was your involvement in that project?
2: So that game, um, that's It's almost like history repeating itself. Um, so Steve um, had was working with Larry DeMar on High Speed. You know, and that was you know that after. Um, Steve, Steve actually had been, out, had been in California for a, a time and had a startup company working on video games and, and uh, came back to Chicago in uh, 85, 86 time frame. maybe 85 it was, and, uh, and, you know, Larry had gotten back into pinball, and so Steve and Larry hooked up um, and did, uh, you know, they had collaborated on, on Black Knight and other games, and so here they hooked up again to do uh, High Speed. And uh, that was just you know, high speed was kind of the game that you know made the exclamation point that you know, like pinball is back. I mean, that was you know just a huge runaway success. And kind of you know, video was pretty much dead at that point, and it was kind of like people were sick of video games, and and all of a sudden, like yeah, you know, this you know the the uh, kind of the multi-level. Approach, I guess, still really single level with all the ramps and everything. Kind of high speed really introduced, you know, the first a new modern era of pinball, you know, which I guess we're still in today, really, starting with high speed, hmm. and uh, and that was uh, you know, alphanumeric displays and uh, you know, all, all that all that cool stuff. So, um, but you know, as normally happens with Steve Ritchie. Um, he gets into fights with his programmers, you know, and uh, so somehow Larry and Steve had a big falling out, and um, you know, there was I, I heard some rumor there was some confrontation where you know Larry was uh, or Steve or Ken Fideszner or somebody was like t- getting ready to like tilt the pinball machine onto somebody, and they were like <laughs> some some big shoving match. I don't, I don't think he won a shoving match with Ken Fideszner, but. But at any rate, uh, Larry, Larry, Larry walked out, and so again, Steve's without a programmer, you know, and like, man, i you know, I need a programmer. Call Eugene, you know, what the hell is he doing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so again, I, you know, I get the call, and, uh, and I said, eh, what the hell, you know? I mean, I was, uh, finishing up at Stanford, and I was like, hey, come on out to, uh, Chicago and do another pinball game. I was like, okay. And I was, uh, um I guess, I guess. actually, maybe that wasn't the way that it happened. The um, I guess I had already been coming out to Chicago to do a new video game, which was the game NARC. And I guess somehow, during that um, early days, the whole thing came down, and it was like, okay, Eugene, you know, take off four months and, you know, do F-14 Comcat with Steve Ritchie and, you know, then get back to your video game. So... That was uh, so I kind of was the you know the call went out, and you know I jumped back into fanball,
1: so you did more than the sound for F14 then,
2: so I did the sound you know I did the program the sound all you know most of this stuff i the uh, interesting enough, my uh, a junior programmer helped me out there, a kid by the name of Ed Boone who ended up you know doing Mortal Kombat and all those games. so I actually I had the pleasure of working with Ed Boone on his first project um he was like my you know effects man and uh he was my grunt slave programmer So.
1: <laughs> now how much different was it doing f14 tomcat than doing you know like you you know the the last game that you really did all the guts for was firepower
2: yeah well you know it was uh you know it wasn't a hell of a lot different really you know it was uh he had more memory he had to do more stuff um uh, obviously, you know, the, the play fields were more sophisticated, um, you know, things had evolved, uh, but it was pretty much still the same old, you know, same old thing, you know, and, uh, the operating system was, you know, obviously much more refined, and there was a lot of, you know, good stuff going on in the hardware, and, uh, everything, but, uh, it was pretty much the same old pinball stuff. And, uh, but it was, we really got, it's funny how that project was, uh, you know, it was kind of the kitchen sink project. You know, it was, uh, it was like, well, we've done three-ball multi-ball. You know, let's do four-ball multi-ball. You know, we we had one spinning light on top of high-speed. You know, let's have three spinning lights on this game, you know. And, and so it was just like we just turned the volume. I mean, this was, the volume was on 12 for this game, you know.
1: Right, that's typical Steve Ritchie again, too.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, and... uh it was uh, just, you know it was a whirlwind project I mean Steve I think had spent a long time struggling with a play field which he he always he's always did I mean he's always trying to cram so much stuff and you know be open to so many ideas and, you know that he you know can end up you know you look at his 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 drafting board and you know it's like I mean it can be months and weeks and he puts stuff on and erases it and you know like and you come back six months later and like what happened there's nothing here <laughs> but uh you know after many many long hours of, of uh engineering and you know working on the new mechanical devices for the game which uh was like this vertical ball popper thing that shot the ball up to the ramping system and the um the diverters to divert the ball and the that uh the kicker that would kick back the uh, the general yagoff kicker and uh, you know, some of the, the, the new things there, the we had to you know, have a four ball ball trough, you know, rather than three and you know, just all kinds of crazy little things. Um to uh make the game work and uh um so you know, it was it was, it was a uh you know, Steve struggled on design for quite a long time and uh uh but then, you know, everything just kinda coalesced in the last you know, three or four months. And uh you know just uh the sound were great um actually uh, we had Chris Graner uh the F14 used uh, I guess it was, I guess that was the first machine to use a new Yamaha sound system and uh um so then we uh we got a guy, a guy I think F14 was before PenBot, right Yes it was yeah and so Chris Graner new sound guy um, came on to do all the music and effects and, and uh, did some just amazing stuff uh, still use some of the old sound effects from uh, um, my, my library um, and uh, but he brought in all this, these new Yamaha effects and, and great new uh, um, music which I guess kind of I guess High Speed was the first Williams game that had music for background and Maybe the first industry game had a musical background. I'm not certain. Um, And then uh, F-14, again, had uh, wonderful musical uh, backgrounds. And uh, several theme songs. uh, uh, Just wonderful wonderful stuff.
1: So is there any chance you're going to come back and do any pinball stuff in the future?
2: You know, I always... uh, I always... um, you know, I'm always nostalgic. You know, I was like, God damn it, you know, because I'll go down to Stern and play their latest game and go, you know, and I go, wow, that's really cool. But why didn't they do this? And you know, damn it, if I was doing this, I would do that. And you know, and I, you know, so it's like you really can't say much unless you're willing to go in there and friggin' do it. You know. <laughs> but you know, I'm threatening. I'm always threatening to come back and do a game. So I'm sure sooner or later I'll have to come back and do a game. And actually, it'd be fun to do a game with Steve maybe something. But I, I would, yeah, that would be fun.
1: Well, cool. Any other pinball stories that I forgot to ask you about that you want to add?
2: Um, damn. Uh, I think you pretty much, uh, I think you got me pretty well.
1: Uh, took you around the bend, eh?
2: Yeah, it took me around the bend. And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, I just, you know, I, I just, uh, I'm just so appreciative of, uh, you know, the chance I had to, to work in, you know, and, the early days of solid state pinball and you know then work with Steve Ritchie and, and do some great games and uh you know, I just uh I'm so happy that uh the guys over at CERN Electronics are, you know, continuing to keep the flame uh, burning hot, you know, with, with some really cool new games and and uh, you know, just uh you know, it does it does make me jealous, you know, to, you know, like, damn it, I wanna be over there programming games. <laughs>
1: Well yeah, but you're doing the raw thrills things you're doing some pretty killer driving games and stuff
2: yeah so i unfortunately i'm I'm pretty well booked up over here, you know doing uh keeping the video game thing alive, the arcade video, and we're having of a lot of fun over here uh you know just doing uh doing all the crazy games that we wanted to and never could and, uh um so yeah we're we kind of have our own thing going over here, so that's 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 uh that's pretty damn fun too.
1: Well, cool. Thank you, uh, Eugene. I really, really appreciate the time that you gave me. It was really great. Thank you, Clay, and uh, uh, it was a pleasure talking with you and uh, hope, to, hope to meet you maybe
2: at uh, expo some year.
1: Cool. Cool. Thank you, and take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Eugene Jarvis for coming on TopCast tonight. really do appreciate his time and telling us about his programming for the coin-op business. Again, thanks again for joining us all on TopCast, and I hope you, you come back and hear us again.